Hello fellow adventurers, I'm Josie Thompson and welcome to You Can Shine podcast where I explore real stories of real people just like you and I who have faced adversities and trials and won. Today I'm here with Justine Roach. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. I inadvertently found out about Justine when I interviewed her aunt and uncle recently for another podcast, Drs. Kim and Paul Power, and they recommended that we talk, and you'll soon discover why. Justine is a partner in a marketing agency with her husband, Simon. She's mother of 18-year-old Samuel. And a fun fact about Justine is she's passionate about house flipping. Now, Justine's life as a successful businesswoman, professional home renovator and mother changed overnight in 2005 after the sudden suicide of her beloved sister, Rachel. Justine suffered a breakdown which left its mark in ongoing depression and anxiety. Justine profoundly transformed her daily experience and she's here to share how she did it. So welcome, Justine. Thanks so much, Josie, for the introduction. I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me here. Thank you. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> I've done a bit of a rundown, Justine, about, I guess, some of the career highlights of your life, but we're keen to hear your real story, the story underneath who is Justine and what are some of the formative experiences that have shaped your life? Okay. Um, the formative experiences, there's a few. If I think first off, the first thing that comes to my mind is Rach's death. It's like before Rach and after Rach. And before her death, I had little little taps on the shoulder, if you like, from the universe saying things aren't quite right here. I was always a very anxious woman. I had bad postnatal depression after Samuel's birth. But it was when Rach died, when Samuel was three, that I I literally just, I, I couldn't figure out how to live in a world without her, which sounds silly. I was 35, but I had been so close to her for so long, so enmeshed for such a long time that, yeah, the world was just such a foreign place without her. She was my security blanket. And as long as she was there, I was, I was, fine and when she went I just I didn't know where to begin so you know I, I had the breakdown I went into therapy I got put on antidepressants and they they have their place they kept me sort of level because Samuel was only three at the time but there was no joy there was no pleasure in life and when I look back it's because I'd never known who I was I never had a sense of self which is why when she died it was, it was like part of me died. I didn't know how to think. I didn't know how to be without Rach in the world. So it sounds like you were very, very close to your sister. Yeah, we were, well, we were only 14 months apart and we always shared a room except when one of us was doing Year 12. Mum made sure that we each had our own bedroom in Year 12, but we shared a room, we shared houses, we shared, we worked at the same jobs for a lot of the time. Then she went and she did clinical psychology but we always live very close by we saw each other all the time we spoke every day and when I had the bad personal depression after Samuel's birth because he had he had a life-threatening surgery at 30 days old he got cut in half because his bowel had twisted and I just mm. panicked I didn't 
and I didn't know how to I'll sort of come to that but I didn't know how to keep him safe in the world his physical health was so threatened um and Rach used to come every night after work she was a psychologist at the mother baby unit at the Austin hospital working with women with postnatal depression and God love her she would come every night no matter how exhausted she was to come and be with Samuel and spend time with me and so I guess we got even closer after Samuel's birth because he was the equivalent of her child and then when she stopped work um she was suffering clinical depression but also uh, what's it called um chronic fatigue and she would spend a lot of time at our place so we got even closer he was you know she was like his second mother so her death rocked both of us and I just didn't know I didn't know how to feel safe so I couldn't help Samuel feel safe and poor Simon he'd married this fun-loving relatively you know easygoing acquiescent woman who fell in a heap so mm. for a while I threw myself manically into buying and selling houses just to keep busy doing anything to keep myself busy but then I just thought you know it's in my book but one day Simon just said I didn't sign up for this you've got to do something I don't and he was right at the time I was devastated like I needed him more than anything to feel safe with but he was right I didn't I wasn't thriving I was surviving so I started looking around for and as you know well at the time this would have been what 15 years ago there were no easy guide maps for having a happy life or rebuilding a life I had no idea where to begin I didn't know yeah, and I guess 15 years ago, people really didn't openly talk about suicide. I mean, no. I'm noticing these days people are more open about the, the conversation and the topic of suicide. But 15 years ago, it would have been a topic that you kept to yourself. Probably, I didn't feel a sense of shame around that, but a lot of my friends who cared about me, they found it very difficult to see mm. me distressed for such a lengthy period of time which I understand and I I think people don't know what to say so they're like come on get on with it but just since your your sister was living with you at the time she was living with us a lot of the time she was in hospital on and off and she was living with mum and dad so she was kind of between houses at the time she did have her own apartment but then she got too unwell with the chronic fatigue so she would spend three or four nights a week with us or three or four nights a week with mum and dad yeah mm. So then leading up to that event, I mean, was there any anything that, that was obvious now in hindsight or was it a complete shock that sent you into orbit in your reality? Mum, mum, mum knew it was coming and she was getting all the possible care that you could mm. get. Like she was getting a lot of support, but to me... It still blindsided me. Mm. I, just, I remember getting the call from my sister Felicity saying, you've got to come down to mum and dad's now. And I just, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything more awful than watching the person that you are closest to in the world mm. leave this realm. It's just, so to me it was a terrible shock, yeah. Mm. How did that affect your whole reality? 
as I suggested earlier, I just, I didn't know how to live without her. I didn't know. She was such a part of our routine. We'd mm. get up every morning. Samuel would have a play. She wasn't well, so she'd go and have a sleep. I would take Samuel out and play. Then we'd come home and have lunch together. If Rachel was at hospital at the time, I'd take Samuel in to see her for lunch. Then he would have his afternoon sleep. You know, we were so, at my day was so in enmeshed with Rachel. So it wasn't just losing her emotional support. It was the physical day-to-day routine. So, you know, it sounds very morbid, but I used to, Every day I used to play the soundtrack from her funeral because it was like in listening to it, I felt like I was honouring her somehow. Mm. I think I spent most days in tears but trying to hide them from my son. He was only three mm. and he would start, he started having panic attacks because I was so anxious. Yeah. You know, I'd never had a panic attack in my life but it got to the point I couldn't even drive. Because mm. I was so anxious, all my distress just went into this generalised anxiety. Absolutely. And when, when the nervous system tips into despair and grief like that, it's very difficult for a, a normal system to continue to function in a normal way because your hormones are everywhere, your emotions yeah. are everywhere, and you can't think clearly. How the hell did you pull up? You know, I can't imagine the courage it must have taken to decide to continue to live on purpose. It was my sister Anna that had heard about this woman. Actually, mum mum went first. Her name was Barbara Andrews and she's a counsellor and an intuitive healer and she had a sanctuary up at Jamison that mm. mum found out about um so mum went up to Jamison and had some sessions with Barb and found her really helpful and then Anna another one of my sisters went and had a session with Barb and Anna found it helpful so she suggested that I go and the minute that I met Barb I thought you are the lady that's going to help me come back from this she did what's called an archetype chart where Mm. you see what's working in your life and what's not and how to fix it and I started working with her weekly and it was I mean in in hindsight it looks like it came together seamlessly but you know what it's like coming back from something so hideous it takes years but her strategies and her philosophies they gave me a framework to start working with she gave me practical Mm. tips and techniques that when I was in the midst of a panic attack or in the midst of chronic grief she gave me tools I could use then and there to start coping because I realized in hindsight I had no idea of who I was I had no sense of self I thought life just happened to you so, Justine, what are some of those practical things that, that were helpful for you in the moment to get you out of panic or anxiety or grief? Yeah, with the with the grieving, I think my modus operandi was to keep resisting it, push it away, ignore it, just keep getting on with your day, keep yourself busy, you know, play in the sandpit with Samuel or build this house or invite these friends over I never stopped and lent into the grief and she was she encouraged me to 
sit quietly with it without even actually paying attention to the story but just feeling the feeling which of deep sorrow and you know if if I didn't know how to access it I would put on some music like I'd put on Rachel's music something that would help me cry not because I was identifying with the story but just to get the grief out of my mm. body and sometimes I would literally sit there and howl for one or two hours I'd leave Samuel with Simon and I'd go down the beach and I'd just play this music and you know sob mm. it passed but I did learn over time I think I used to feel that if I surrendered to the grief that it would overwhelm me that it would kill me and the fear living without her and the more the more I worked with Barb and the more I started allowing myself to feel rather than think, mm. you know, a lot of memories started coming to the surface of why I was the type of person I was, why I thought the way I did, why I had the behavioural patterns that I had. And slowly these memories started arriving, arising of, you know, I, I was sexually abused from the time I was three or four till I was 11 or 12 I had buried that those memories so deeply because I just couldn't deal with them as a child it was just too much it was too horrible so like many kids you just develop coping mechanisms to get through the day and it actually wasn't even the abuse that was the most terrible thing it was the fear of being caught of being exposed of somebody finding out it was living with that daily that was so horrible so before Rachel passed you did not have memory of this childhood abuse no somehow in the depths of your grieving this, these memories started to surface of suppressed grief that you'd hidden somehow from your conscious mind. And that was almost coming up now to also be cleared out. Yeah. So what, yeah. what was going on for you? I mean, how did you cope during this time? Again, I was so lucky I was working with Barb. Mm. Um, and I got, I got, professional help too you know I started working with a trauma therapist who was extraordinary Debbie and I still see her sometimes because sometimes still memories come to the surface and people would think how could you not have remembered being abused but it's amazing how clever the mind is and how strong the survival instinct is and I was told by the perpetrator that if I ever you know told the family that I'd be taken away from home as a little kid. That's the most terrifying thought. So I just, I just blocked it off. It's like I just shelved that part of myself and dissociated mm. from it. But the more that the memories came up as an adult, the more grief came up around how much it informed the person that I am, mm. you know, mm. and how little courage I had in life I guess to to do anything or be anything and it was like 
it was like my pathways weren't formed properly. So you just grow up thinking I have to accept whatever's dealt out to me or I just I just have to live with this. I just have to accept this and get on with it. I, I never I didn't grow up with that sense of self that says I'm in charge of my own life mm. and I can create the life that I want. Well, let's see. These things occurred when you were very little, very young. Yeah. So it's very difficult to feel a sense of empowerment when someone in a position of authority is abusing your trust and yeah. all of a sudden you feel genuinely helpless and hopeless. There is no courage in that situation. There's surrender because what can you do in that situation? So what I know through my studies with neuroscience is these experiences actually get frozen you know, in our psyche somewhere. And they, they, they can get forgotten or buried intentionally so that they sit underneath the conscious mind. And occasionally for some people, it will come up when we're most disturbed and our guard's down and we're feeling that grief, the, the, the portal's open to feel. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you think that's bad? Let me remind you about this. Are you... And I think it was the loneliness <laughs> when Rach died, I felt so lonely. And that reminded me, like I didn't start having these awarenesses come up till 2014, 15. Rach died in 2005, so they took nine years to wow. come up. But the loneliness that I felt after Rach's death mm. reminded me of the loneliness I felt as a kid because it was always like something's wrong with me. I'm not the same mm. as everybody else. Mm. And because Rach was the only person that knew this, horrible sort of secret she was like my safety mm. and as long as she was around I'd be okay so when she went it sort of so yeah I got some I got some um help some professional help mm. and again I just did that practice of leaving the story at the door and I'd go into my bedroom and sit in my chair it's like my safe space I, I had to find a place that felt safe for me so I got mm. a special chair mm. and I would just visualize the child I had a drawing of myself as a child yeah and I would just hold that in my on my lap you yeah. know and hug it and cry yeah for the child until the distress passed until yeah. the memory passed and I still do the same now when something terrible happens I literally imagine it's the only thing for me that works it's the mm. one thing that has mm. that gets me through anything I literally imagine a door that I'm opening a door to my heart and I welcome the memory in or I welcome the fear in or I welcome the anger in because I spent a lifetime mm, saying you're not welcome I don't want yeah. you yeah and there's a lot of like what I'm hearing, and this is what I do too, is a lot of the inner child healing. Yeah. Quite a lot of these experiences occurred in much younger stages of our development where we didn't have the cognitive wisdom yes. to cope, let alone deal with it. So I'm curious now in your adulthood, yeah. having had these significant traumas occur in your life, significant loss you know, extreme sense of loneliness because you wouldn't dare talk or, you know, share the experiences with other people. What did you call on within yourself to resource yourself, to empower yourself, to just 
keep going? It's a good question that because prior to Rachel's death, it was Rachel, she was my yeah. strength. And so when she went, I didn't have any. There was nothing. There was no pain. Yeah. There was just this puddle of fear. And I think it was the daily practice. I remember Barb saying you can't make positive change in, in your life until you really know and love who you are. And mm -hmm. to me, that was an anathema because I didn't know who I was. I didn't, I definitely didn't have a sense of appreciation for myself or love for myself I was so hard on myself you know I look back and think how I used to talk to my body and mm. uh, you know I, I wasn't at all kind to myself so you know it sounds silly but it started with little things little acts of kindness to myself whether it was giving myself time to have a bath and putting nice salts in it that again that sounds like it's nothing but to me taking that time out mm. was an indulgence and an act of self-love yeah so I started with little acts of self-love I would start talking to my body when I was drying myself after the shower thanking it for taking mm. me all around the world or for surviving what it survived or you know Samuel Samuel was an IVF baby and I was so desperate to have him. I tried so hard and then for him to be to nearly die within 30 days of having him, that was so traumatic. And I didn't ever be kind to myself during that time and honor myself, not just for for managing to create a baby out of nothing, but for saving him because I took him to, I rang the doctor and they're like, no, he's fine, he's fine. And I knew he wasn't fine. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. I was just so lucky I followed my gut and got him to the hospital and mm. they figured what was wrong. So, yeah, it probably started with being really loving to myself, really gentle with myself and being really conscious. You know, as, as you know, with neuroscience, energy follows thought. So I started being very conscious of the language I used around myself. I stopped saying, you know, I'm hopeless or I'm weak or I'm this or I'm that. And I'd be, I would never utter those words anymore. I would consciously touch myself, pat my heart or hold my arm or do something that affirmed mm. that I was here and that I was alive and that I was surviving. And sometimes, as you know, it's, it's, it's a minute-by-minute minute process. I remember some nights in 2013 and 14 sitting up in the middle of the night. I didn't want to wake Simon and worry him, feeling I was going to faint from fear. The panic attacks were so bad, mm -hmm. so severe as these memories were coming to the surface. And all you can do is breathe. When it's that bad, all you can do is think, is to drop the mind and drop the story because, you know, it's like your mind will always be catastrophizing and throwing you into the future or reaching back into the past. I had to keep pulling myself back to this present moment, mm. literally looking. I had a beautiful little um, Buddha statue and I'd just look at him and breathe. Mm. I'm not a Buddhist, but I just, the serenity in this little statue and I'll just breathe that they were just some of the things that I did to, and sometimes I would literally, um, Craig Halliday is a terrific fellow to listen to. I don't know if you know him, but I used to listen to his podcast and sometimes I would literally get on my knees on the floor in the child pose and I would just put my hands down on the floor and I would just surrender this horrible mm. pain to God. 
because nothing mm-hmm. else I could do. It was yeah. just surrender. Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm broken. I don't know how to come back from this, but I'm, I'm giving it to you because it's too much for me. Yeah. And I'll share very quickly that surrendering is so important. When I was diagnosed um, with cancer and given six months to live, my parents had the priest come and give me my final rites. And I got really angry thinking they're all giving up on me. They're all thinking I'm going to die because the doctor said that, but I don't actually believe it. And I rang the priest just last week. He's 92 years old now, (laughs) right? And I rang him up and I wasn't going to get angry with him. I actually thanked him. And he said, I remember you. I said, do you? He said, yeah, I gave you your final rites. I said, yes, I didn't appreciate that at the time. And he said, but it worked, didn't it? Yeah. And I said, what do you mean? Doesn't it mean when you do final rites, you're, you're offering me up to God? He said, no, we were offering your cancer to God. Ah. And just that reframe Never was thought so, of it. so powerful and so empowering. And I was so glad I made that phone call after 30 plus years that I got that clarification of an assumption that had created a lot of resentment that I'd been harbouring. What a beautiful way to look at it because I've never thought of last rites like that ever. No, No. yeah. So, you know, it sounds like surrendering was a very powerful process for you to get through this. It was. So giving yourself permission to just feel. Yes. Not judge, not suppress, not hide. What, What else did you learn that could really enable other listeners who can really relate to your story here, Justine? Um, I, for me, listening to great, um, like the modern day philosophers, I found really inspiring because there's so many people out there that have really struggled but have turned their life around. So whether it's the Brene Brown, the Craig Halliday, the Muji, the... um, you know, Oprah, some of the women that Oprah has, Marianne Williamson, there's so many people out there. Mm. I might listen to a little bit of that. I might, for me, nature, nature has been transformative for me. I had no idea of the healing power of Mm. nature until 2013 when I was really six, I was forced to stay at home and I was so fortunate we had a magnificent garden and I would go out and I would sit on the grass and Barb again my teacher gave me a beautiful practice of calling in the energy of mother earth coming right through my body and connecting with and it was it was it's changed my whole perspective and how I am and now I can't not feel happy when I'm out in nature when I drop everything because everything's going to be there when I come back from my walk but when I drop everything and I'm just present, like just before doing this podcast, I was feeling a bit nervous because I knew we'd be talking about painful topics. So I took myself down to the um, surf beach, which is right near here, and there was this beautiful little set of little plover birds, <clears throat> excuse me, that have been nearly extinct and they've been, and you can't not see things like that and be that close to the earth and not feel alive and Mm. get in touch with who you are so nature would be a big one for me Josie Mm. um music is transformative for me like if I'm feeling really sad I'll I'll put something on to help me cry to clear it but if I'm angry I put on (laughs) I put on um 
like Neil Diamond, Hot August Night, or I put on, <laughs> which I'm in my age now, um, Aretha Franklin or Tina Turner's Proud Mary, and I dance, which mm. sounds a bit insane, but I I get a really powerful, loud song that's so loud and I dance until I can feel it vibrate through my whole body mm. and then that will shift that energy, that will shift that that vibration and change the frequency if you like mm. I find that really helpful what else do I do um the the most powerful one for me was that door opening welcoming everything in mm. to my heart I've, I've learned that the joy and the healing that doesn't come from out there you always think something else when I did um thinking Rachel would keep me safe or my husband will keep me safe or a house keeps you safe or money keeps you safe. None of that keeps you safe. It's it's building that sense of who you are or getting in touch with that sense of who you are, which actually isn't your thoughts and isn't your mind and it isn't even your feelings. It's your soul essence that never changes and it takes time to get in touch with that and come to know that and come to trust that. Mm. But it's that now that I go to. It's that that restores me. It's that that keeps me balanced. And I've become disciplined enough now that when I'm feeling upset or distressed, I do that heart practice first. Yeah. I open the door and welcome it in. And then I sit in my room and I drop all thoughts and I just... I just remember it's not the thoughts, it's not the feelings. This heart essence doesn't change. It's only the heart for me. And I'm not crying because I'm upset now, but it's like that's everything. Yeah. And when you come to know your own heart, it changes everything. And you never have to go back to that place of terrible loneliness, that terrible sense of I'm not going to be okay or I'm not going to be or I'm not going to survive because your love for yourself is so strong and so healing that you know that that's all that matters. I don't know if that makes sense. but oh, It makes perfect sense for me. You're, you're basically describing the path from, you know, trauma to significant um, triumph and through self-love. Yeah, that's what it is. Mm. It is. Mm. And it sounds, you know... Um, when we're brought up, we're not taught to to love ourselves or be compassionate with ourselves. That was seen as arrogance at school, you know. Mm. Um, and even as teenagers, you you don't want to look like you value yourself or you care about yourself because it seems that you're being immodest or you know obnoxious, whatever. So you learn to put yourself down. You learn not to value the self. Let alone with me coming with my background where I. I wasn't safe to ever think about what I felt or who I was. I didn't have it. But to me now, that that's the secret to, to joy and to healing is mm. to slowly foster that sense of self, not the egoic self, the mind self, but that heart self that is so precious. That, the pure, the pure yeah. self, yeah. And then you don't have to go out anywhere else. It's there all the time mm. for you to access. Mm. My teacher, Barb, always says to me, who's asking the question, you know, who am I? And it's it's, it's not the, the mind and the ego and the thoughts, all those things that we, the story that we think makes us up, we're none of that. But it's very hard when you're in the midst of it mm. and you're on your knees like I have been because yeah. it's so painful yeah. to 
for the truth of who you are. So it's it's sitting with the true self daily. It doesn't have to be meditation. I'm actually not very good at meditation. Mm. But for me, it's nature. It's walking. So, so Justine, are there any other nuggets of wisdom that you'd like to leave our audience with? <sighs> oh, <laughs> there, there was a few in your book, actually, that I read that I thought was beautiful. Let me just read it out. The I am statements that you talk about. Yes. yes. Having a vision of what we want brings about the changes that we desire. And then you talked about listening to masters to encourage us to think bigger and connect us with our true nature. Yes, yeah. And when you do, when you realise that we are expressions of divine consciousness, that all that wisdom is within and you read inspiring material or watch inspiring YouTubes, you align yourself with that vibration, with that ancient knowledge that's there for mm. everybody. Mm. just not used to tapping into it mm. yeah it's it's little things every day to remind yourself of how precious you are that's that for me has been the the journey beautiful and if justine people want to connect with you or they want to know more where can we direct them uh i've got a facebook page justine roach on facebook or yep. my um website startbeinghappy.com.au okay. that'll get you in in touch with me Well, I'll make sure I put them in the show notes. But Justine, what an inspiration and true light you are in the world. You've really shown us that no matter what the circumstances, you really can rise and shine again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mm. Thanks for listening. Now, if Justine can do it, so can you. Did you like this podcast interview? Share your comments with me and tell me what you loved most about this interview and how it has been helpful to you. Help spread the love by sharing the link with your friends so that they can rise and shine too. So until next time, remember, it's not what happens to you that defines you. It's how you respond that counts. Shine on. You can't shine.